careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for mercies shown, mercies that are new every morning, the privilege of gathering here with your people to sing together, to pray, to worship, and now to read and preach your word. So bless us as we hear. Give us those ears to hear, eyes to see. Help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. Conform us to the image of the Son by means of this word. Encourage where that is needed. Strengthen and challenge. Lord, you know the needs of each heart before you. So give us the grace we need today. And help us to to trust you that maybe even in our own lives that we want to see the word doing even more, forming even more. But help us to believe in the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Romans chapter 1, the opening of this great letter, Paul paints a pretty bleak picture of the world in which we live. He describes those who serve created things, who degrade their bodies through impurity, who are full of envy, murder, strife, greed, and malice, those who gossip, slander, boast, hate God, hate their parents, show no love or faithfulness, and have no mercy. That's not a very pleasant picture in it. It's a bleak, dark picture of a world that's out of line with God, but that is the world in which we live. And Paul's purpose, of course, isn't just for us to stay opposite the world and say, you're right, it, it sure is bad. It's the world order we all once followed. When we were enslaved to the powers of sin and death. But now, through the gospel, a new world order has come. Because Jesus is Lord. And God is rescuing humans, you and me, from our slavery to the old way of things. And he's making us into new creatures and renewed humans. And that vision of the new humanity is what Paul began to sketch for us in Romans 12. And so last week we saw our place in that new humanity is to become holy and humble, to give ourselves in God to total consecration, and to give ourselves to one another through the use of the gifts and abilities that God gives us by the Spirit. Well, today Paul continues to paint this picture, continues to show us the new humanity in action. And this time he focuses on two things, our sincere love for one another and our forgiving love for those who hurt us. And each brush stroke that he applies paints a better way of life than the one we once knew. A better way of life than Romans 1 and those natural inclinations. Let's listen today to Paul's admonitions because he's going to outline for you a better way for us to live. And he's going to invite us into this good life as scripture so often does. 
So let's look at those two main areas today. First, our sincere love for one another. Now, as you probably noticed when we read this passage a moment ago, the verses give us a rapid-fire series of admonitions, and they just come one after another. And as you read through them, they they may not seem to have much structure or outline. It may, may not be clear what holds them all together. Even the outline I'm giving you today in this sermon, it's mainly just to help us pace our thoughts so the whole passage doesn't blur together. It's almost as if Paul is saying, hey, this is the new life. Let me just give you this overwhelming impression of what it's like. But nonetheless, I think we can discern some main areas, big ideas that help hold everything together. So Paul begins with the statement, let love be sincere, or love must be sincere. And as we proceed, you'll see that love seems to be a driving concept. It motivates many of these actions. Not every action is a specific example of love, or what it means to love, but a commitment to love generates this kind of life. So what does it mean that love must be sincere? Well, the word translated sincere, it's taken from the theater. Actors would wear masks to cover up their face. The Greek word for actor is where we get the English word hypocrite. They hid their true identity and presented the identity of their character. Well, Paul is saying that believers love, the love we express for one another, it should be without a mask. It should be without hypocrisy. And if you think, yeah, well, but sometimes I struggle when I'm around that person. I struggle with how I feel towards that person. And it feels not genuine just to tell me to love them when I struggle with those feelings. How do I make those go away? And I would simply encourage you that, remember this, love is more about deeds than feelings. So doing good things towards others and doing them sincerely, that is an expression of love. And sometimes actions lead the way. Sometimes actions will lead to fight feelings. The feelings may follow. But we can all begin to do genuine deeds of love for one another, even when you may struggle with different feelings. So what follows then explains what sincere love is. Genuine love will hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Now, notice Paul does not say we hate evil people, but we do reject evil deeds. We want no part of the old way of things that led to death and destruction. That kind of life leads to death and misery, and we don't want any part of that path any longer. Instead, we we cling like a husband to a wife to what is good. And that love command then repeats in verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. So once again, family language here. To be devoted to one another is to care for one another, both materially and spiritually. And the second half of the verse gives perhaps one example of how to do this. Honor one another above yourselves. And I think the ESV is a little clearer here on what that means. Outdo one another in showing honor. So one author explains it like this. Paul calls on Christians to outdo one another 
in bestowing honor on one another. For example, to recognize and praise one another's accomplishments and to defer to one another. So Paul sees a congregation in which we take an interest in one another, an interest in what is happening in each other's lives, and we celebrate that. Having served now for a few years, I had the privilege to know some of you as you've retired or taken new jobs or others that have gone off to college and school, and those are the kinds of things we take an interest in and and celebrate the good things that God is doing in one another's lives. And, And Paul says, hey, make it a race. Outdo one another in how you show honor to each other. Now, at first glance, verse 11 may seem disconnected from the love theme. It reads, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. But the zeal Paul commands here probably has reference to the previous command to love. Be zealous in showing honor to one another and loving one another. If nothing else... Paul is reminding us, don't lose your enthusiasm for offering yourself as a living sacrifice. And that involves living this life of love. Those actions should have some spiritual fervor behind them. They shouldn't just be the leftovers or when I feel like it. They should have fervor, which is a way of saying they should have a fire from the Spirit. We should be set on fire by the Spirit. Reminds you of language that's sometimes used. That person, they're on fire for God. Well, Paul says that is how the body should act. The Spirit gives us fire in living this kind of zealous, loving, sacrificial life. And the result then is that we will serve the Lord. We'll live as slaves to God. And that's, of course, what Romans 6 was all about. So now verse 12 admonishes us, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And I think all three of those are held together by a common theme. Christians have a future hope, this new creation that Jesus has introduced and that we're journeying towards. And along the way, there will be trials and tribulations, reminders that we still have one foot in the old creation that's subject to sin and death. Well, what helps us persevere to the end? Prayer. Crying out to the Lord in our weakness because we don't know what we ought to pray for, but we find comfort in the Spirit who intercedes for us. And then finally, this first section closes with the commands, share with the Lord's people who are in need, practice hospitality. The word translated share, that's the word often translated fellowship. And we think of having fellowship with one another, fellowship with people. And yet Paul says here, yes, not only that, but have fellowship in their needs. Share in their needs. And it reminds me of the record of Acts where the early church pooled their resources to meet common needs. And I know that raises questions about, okay, how do we apply such an idea today? And that's a good discussion worth having. What I'd say is don't let the questions paralyze you from trying to apply the principle. In trying to answer the questions, don't let that keep you from working out this New Testament ethic of sharing and hospitality. Because what Paul is doing here is, like I say, he's just painting this picture of a better way of life. 
again, now that we're just a few verses in, you can see what I mean. It's almost as if he's had, I got all these things I really need to say. Let me just get them out now. Well, I just think Paul is trying to give us this picture. Hey, here's a good life. Here's a life worth living. And it's not so much, okay, all right, I'm going to check verse 9 tomorrow, and then I'll check verse 10 on Tuesday. It's just, hey, get the big picture. This is the kind of life worth living. I was just talking to someone the other day where their testimony of becoming a Christian, of, of coming to faith in Christ, was basically, I, I was watching this movie about a pastor who was killed while he was serving God, and, and something just clicked in my brain. I, I should serve God 100%. And, and that's where they look back to their understanding of the gospel, that, that life in Christ is just all about giving yourself to God 100%. And when we do that, this is the kind of life that emerges. This is a good way of life, driven by a sincere love for one another. So let's come then to the second section, which presents our forgiving love for those who hurt us. So the section, the second section, verses 14 to 21, this continues the overall focus on love, but we're given more attention on how to love those who have harmed you. Now, not every verse addresses that theme. In fact, some of the verses, well, it will sound like the previous section again. So Paul's just overall concern is, let me give you a gospel strategy for how to support one another as Christians and how to relate to others, even when that means responding to harsh treatment. Now that theme emerges immediately in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Now that blessing language, we use that language often in church. And when we think about God blessing us, we think of him bestowing good things on us. And the idea here would be somewhat similar. To bless your persecutors is to ask for bestowal of a special favor. You, you can't get the, you can't directly give them God's blessings, but you can pray that God would bless them. So when others do wrong to you, you want to see God do good to them. You aren't interested in getting back at them or in getting even. You want what is good for them in the long term. And that is for God to be at work in their lives. And so we don't respond with a curse, we respond with a blessing, wanting God to bless them. And obviously, to respond to evil with good, that would be a manifestation of a sincere love. That would be shunning evil and clinging to what is good. So it's a basic application of the passage. But not only that, can you think of a more striking example of how to demonstrate that you are a new human, that you have a transformed way of thinking. Can you think of a more countercultural way to act than to return evil with good? We we often think in the church, okay, the, the culture is doing this. How can we show that we are different? Paul's understanding of countercultural behavior is to respond to evil with good. You see, according to Romans 1, the old way of things, that's the way of murder and malice without love and mercy. Is is that how any of you or we want to live? No. The way of Jesus completely transforms 
our response to evil. He teaches us to turn the other cheek, and he prays for the forgiveness of those who crucified him. And verse 15 then enjoins, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Now again, I don't want to force the connection between each verse, there's a sense, like I've already said, in which Paul is just giving different ways to live out your new identity. We don't, we don't have to tie them together. But there is something about the empathy that this verse enjoins that follows naturally from the previous commandments. Think about it with me. To empathize with someone is to identify with their emotions, their thoughts, their attitudes. It's a little different from sympathy in which there's that general concern for others in a hard time. Empathy, on the other hand, is to enter into those emotions, those thoughts, and those attitudes. And that's exactly what Paul is enjoining us to do here. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. So when others are joyful, genuine love doesn't respond with envy or bitterness. Why did they get that? I deserve that, or I don't want them to have that. No, we enter into their joy. And furthermore, when others are sorrowful, we don't withdraw. We don't take a superior position and say, okay, how can I fix this person? No, we we identify with the suffering of our brothers and sisters. Their sorrows become ours. That is genuine love. And so now I want you to consider the flow of thought here. And I think Paul is saying we should also strive to have that attitude towards those who are hostile to us. We don't return hostility with hostility, but we want to see others experience joy. And if they experience sorrow, we don't then rejoice in that. We sorrow with them. We hope for their Relief. In other words, we would empathize even with our enemies. So verse 16 then continues. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. You see, if you're going to have a mindset of mutuality towards one another, what we just saw in verse 15 then we will have to adopt the mindset of equality that verse 16 enjoins. Our command is to live in harmony with one another. Our goal is to live in harmony with one another. Well, we can only do that when we don't think of ourselves as better than anyone else. When we weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. When we don't view ourselves as superior. And we can express that mindset then by associating with people of low position. So verse 17 then returns to the theme of non-retaliation. Paul writes, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. So again, Paul understands others may harm us. And so he counsels us, do not repay their actions in kind, but rather do good to them. And when he says, be careful to do what is right, he means we should plan to do what is right. Plan to do what is good to those who harm you. So, friends, sometimes you actually have to think ahead. You have to look ahead 
to situations that are coming up and see, okay, harm may come to me in that particular situation. And you have to prepare your mind to do good. You have to go into that situation knowing this could go bad, so I'm going to be ready to do good. So it could be going into a tricky situation at work, maybe with an employee that you have to talk to or a boss or or some kind of situation there. It could be in the home where you know there's tension or any other relationship in life. I think our temptation is to start playing the scenario in our mind, and we're going to imagine that it goes bad, and when it goes bad, here's how we're going to win. Here's how we're going to go even, get even. And Paul is saying, no, don't think that way. If it goes bad, first give people a chance, it might not. If it goes bad, though, be careful to do what is good. Not how you'll get back and get even. Think, how can I respond graciously if things don't go well? Now, with all this focus then on being gracious and forgiving and doing good to others, maybe this is the point to say, This does not mean you have to pretend that other people's actions don't hurt or hurt you. So one author writes, saying you shouldn't take revenge isn't a way of saying evil isn't real or that it didn't hurt after all or that it doesn't matter. Evil is real. It often does hurt sometimes very badly indeed and with lasting effects, and it does matter. Paul isn't saying, hey, if you had your mind right, you would just be immune to ever feeling any of that. No, that's why he gives us this command. He knows we very well might think that way or feel that way and be tempted to respond to the hurt of others in an unhealthy manner. So he gives us these commands on how to deal with it graciously. We'll say a little bit more about that in just a moment. First, verse 18 states, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now, I love this verse. Because here's a strategy that Paul is giving you, that God is giving you for dealing with harmful and even toxic people that are in your life. Can you live at peace with them? Paul does not say, figure out how to coexist with everyone. In other words, it's always on you to make sure everyone gets along. You are to always go in there and be the peacemaker. You're you're to lay aside anything that's important to you and just make sure that everything works out. He does not say, you always have to figure out how to coexist. No. He says, if possible, live at peace with everyone. So, If there are people where there will not be peace, in other words, where they will use your forgiveness, they will use your love and take advantage of that to just administer further abuse, if that's the case, then get away from them. Because allowing people to use and abuse you is not what Paul is envisioning here. What he is envisioning, though, is a gracious response that gives people a chance. Because the other side of the equation is those who say, oh, there is conflict, I can take the high road, I'm out of this relationship, I tried, you messed up, I'm done. No, Paul does not want us to take the easy way out. He doesn't want us to use conflict as an excuse to just run away from the world or to run away from our problems or to run away from other people. 
You see, mistreatment by others may give you an opportunity to demonstrate the gospel. And if you can do that in a healthy way, then we should shine the light of peace wherever we can. And I'll pray for you this week, because maybe you're thinking right now of some people in your life where you want to put this into practice. I'll pray God gives you the wisdom to get the balance right, because that's where we struggle, isn't it? Is this a toxic person and I need to put up boundaries, or am I taking the easy way and out being gracious and forgiving? I'll pray God gives all of us the wisdom to know exactly how to get it down the middle of the fairway. And verses 19 to 20 then give us the strategy for responding to hurts. And, and Paul's been moving this way through the whole section. So he finally states it plainly. Verse 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. What frees you to forgive people? What enables you to let go and not take vengeance on them? The fact that God is the judge. That he knows how to administer justice and he knows how to manage the situation. And I don't think that means we sit back and say, okay, well, I really hope, you know, those people suffer judgment. It just means you're freed from being the judge. You don't have to carry that burden around anymore. God is the perfect judge. He's the perfect savior. He knows how to show mercy and save and change and restore. He knows how to judge those who do harm, who will not repent. If you try to fulfill that role, it will destroy you. You can't carry that burden. You don't want to, but God can and will. And so on the contrary, as verse 20 commands, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, the command is clear enough. Instead of revenge, do good to others. That's how you bless your persecutors. That's that's the right thing to do in the eyes of everyone. Now, what isn't clear from this verse is the precise meaning of the imagery of heaping burning coals on someone else's head. I mean, it almost sounds like Paul is saying, hey, if you do good to others, then that's how you really make them hurt. And, you know, that just doesn't really seem to fit the tone of this passage, does it? Uh, the language comes from the Old Testament, Proverbs 25, but you can look it up. It's not much clearer in Proverbs uh, what it means there either. Some have suggested that this picture reflects an Egyptian practice in which a guilty person, as a sign of repentance, carried a basin of glowing coals on the head. Therefore, by being kind to your enemy... You cause them to become red in the face, embarrassed or humiliated, and move them to repent. That's one study Bible's suggestion. However we understand the imagery, this is one of those rare occasions where the illustration is less clear than the command. At least in this instance, the command is clear enough. And Paul summarizes it in the closing verse, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. And with this, he boomerangs back to where he started in verse 9. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. What's the evil? Doing wrong to others. Getting revenge. What is the good? Sincere, forgiving love. That is what Paul 
imagines we will render to each other and to those who have hurt you. So who are those people? Perhaps some of the people that have hurt you are believers. Maybe they're fellow Christians. Or they used to be believers. Maybe that was part of the hurt as they left the faith. Perhaps they are or were members of your church. Maybe they were your own children or your relatives. Again, Paul is not telling you in this passage that you cannot have boundaries. You may need to cut off a cycle of mistreatment. You may have to do that in order to live in peace towards others. Boundaries are fine. But with boundaries, check your heart. Just check the disposition of your heart. Is it one of love and forgiveness? After all, Christ, he was overcome by evil people. But he wasn't overcome by evil in his attitudes or actions. Instead, he overcame evil. How? By his love, by his life. So our posture towards others, it's just a phrase I keep coming back to when I think of how God postures himself towards the world in the gospel. So our posture towards others, whether it's in church, home, school, government, society, or anywhere else, should be one of humility and mercy and love and forgiveness. That's how we live as the new humanity. And those central ethics of the Christian life, this should be the draw for us. This should be the attraction for us. These kinds of ethics should be what's attracting us to church and to each other, not other causes, but these central ethics. And every one of us in this room, you you can help others experience a life like this. You can be the light to them. And that can be in this church. That can be where you encounter them outside of this church. This is the better way for us to live. Let's pray for God to give us the grace to do so. Father in heaven, thank you that you love us. That God so loved the world that you gave us your one and only son. So form in us this overall disposition of love. Father, forgive us when we don't show love. We can all reflect and and be embarrassed and ashamed at the times we've failed to show love. Lord, forgive us in your mercy. Cleanse us and transform us. And just give us this overall uh, attitude, direction of life. And help us to to look for places to show it. Not Not just to go along with the flow, but to be to be zealous in in showing it. Help us especially when we get in the heat of the moment, wherever we may find ourselves this week, at work, at home, anywhere else. If we're in the heat of the moment, Lord, help us especially in those times to know the Spirit speaking to us words of love that we might love others. And so I pray that the people of God here would know your love for their souls this week. They would experience love in this church. They'd experience your love as they live their lives And thank you for Jesus Christ the Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.